Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And in this podcast, I travel through the Carolinas, seeking out some of my favorite sports legends and asking them to tell me the real stories behind their rise to iconic status. For this episode, we are joined by Chris Paul, who grew up in Winston-Salem and then starred at Wake Forest before becoming a 12-time NBA All-Star. I first had the opportunity to meet with Chris for this Sports Legends interview over Zoom. Then the week after that, CP3 was traded to the Golden State Warriors. Only hours after that trade, we saw Chris for a second time. This time in Winston-Salem, where he had returned to his hometown for his book tour and to see his family. Chris, what is your reaction to being traded to Golden State today? Um, I'm excited. <laughs> I got that question, I don't know how many times already, so I'm, I'm really excited. You uh, spoke with Steph, it sounds like, already, and how did that go? It was, it was good, yeah. What do you think your uh, role will be on that team? Uh, to help us win games. <laughs> <laughs> we got to speak with Chris about his new memoir, 61, Life Lessons from Papa, on and off the court, in which he goes into detail describing the touching relationship he had with his grandfather, who was murdered in 2002. Chris Paul, next on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, we're, we're so glad to have you, and let's start with a book. I read it over a single weekend, and I couldn't put it down, really. Uh, and largely because it was so rooted in your growing up experiences in Winston-Salem. So for those who don't know, you've dedicated 61 to a man you call Papa Chili. So for those listeners who don't know who that is or what he stood for in Winston-Salem, describe Papa Chili for us. Yeah, uh, my grandfather was everything. He had the first Black-owned service station. He uh, was a worker, was a worker, and he uh, truly loved what he did, but what he loved more than the service station was his family. And so uh, he was he was a huge part of everything that we, we did. You know, he was our backbone. I lost my grandmother when I was seven. And so uh, when I lost my grandmother, I saw how it affected my granddad. And uh, I was already close with him, but that brought us even closer because I just wanted to make sure that he was never lonely and that um, he just always had somebody. And I tried to be that for him. You mentioned the service station called Jones Chevron. How often did you work there, Chris? And what did you do there when you did work at Jones Chevron? Yeah, I worked there often, actually, very often. And uh, the, the phone number to my granddad's service station was 7232232. And every time you answered the phone, you had to answer and say, John Chevron. And, you know, one day it might be working the, working the cash register, you know, when people are coming in. Sometimes me and my brother would run out to try to see who, who could get to somebody's car fast enough to to pump that gas. Now that probably wasn't the safest thing to do, but it was all we knew. 
you know, and then some days we could go inside and get to help change a tire or rotate, rotate tires. I think it was always interesting because my brother's two years older than me. And so I would get frustrated at times because when he got to move up to something else, I would still have to be down just pumping gas and checking oil. And so, uh, like I talk about in the book, my brother actually got a chance to start doing car inspections. So it was just, um, this was our family business. Other people have all different types of family business, but you just try to make sure everybody's a part of it. And the book is called 61. And so for those who don't know why it's called 61, can you tell us that story? Yeah, it's called 61 because that's how old my grandfather was when he died. You know, uh, I signed my letter of intent to go to Wake Forest on November 15th. I mean, November 14th, 2002. And my grandfather was tragically murdered by five teenagers that very next day on the 15th. Uh, the 19th was his funeral. And then the 20th was the first game of my senior year against Parkland High School right there in Winston. And I scored 61 points in that game for, for every year that my grandfather had been alive. And I had 59. I drove to the lane, excuse me, hit a floater off the glass, which gave me 61 and one, got fouled. Uh, walked to the free throw line, threw the ball out of bounds and walked off the court and hugged my dad and my brother, my family, my mom, everybody, just um, because all the emotions that finally came to it. It's a remarkable story. And you go into the game in great depth, Chris. And I had not really read about it before in 2002 like that. So was it a spur of the moment decision there? I mean, were you trying to get to 61 points particularly? When did you come up with the idea to purposely airball that free throw? You know, when I left the house to go to the game, my my grandma, I mean, uh, my aunt, my aunt Rhonda, my mom's sister, she just looked at me and basically said, how about something special for Papa? You know, but I didn't know what that would be like. Could that be writing his name on my shoes? Could that be, you know, I don't I don't know. And then um, on my way to the game and while I was shooting free throws before the game, I was like, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna go for 61. Hmm. You hit it. It is amazing that you you hit it. And so then how did you process his death after he had been such an enormous part of your life? Yeah, um, it's funny because I 20 years later, I think I'm still processing it. And I didn't really realize that until I wrote the book. Right. You think that you're sort of over something. You think it's going to take a few weeks. You think it's going to take a few months or a year or so, but it can take longer and it's OK. And it just hits you in different spurts. Um, when you lose someone that polarizing and that means that much to you, um, is, is off and on now, you know, obviously life goes on, you live, you try to, you know, have all these different experiences. And, and sometimes it's just these little five minute moments that it hit me. Sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night in tears and my wife would be like, what's wrong? And it's nothing wrong with just telling her, you know, I just really miss my granddad because it's. It's these these moments around my kids and my family that I just wish you got an opportunity to uh, to take in. So the first time I ever saw you play, I mean, you can tell from my gray hair, Chris, that I'm an old head. I think it's my daughter would say. But the first time I saw you play was not in high school, although I was aware of how great you were there. But it was in December 2003. You were a freshman. You were playing at Chapel Hill. And it was what I think for entertainment value 
might have been the best college basketball game I have ever seen in person. What a treat we have today. Roy Williams is back at Carolina. Today, his first ACC game. We have three of the top four scorers in the Atlantic Coast Conference on display. And for many of you, your first look at Demon Deacon's freshman phenom point guard, Chris Paul. For the month of December, does it get much better than this? December 20th. December 20th. Ah, you remember it. Triple overtime. Mm. Y'all won 119 to 114. So what do you remember about that game? That was my very first ACC game. And so and it was Roy Williams also. It was the last game before we went, went home for Christmas break. And I just remember, you know, I remember it got so loud in that arena one, at one point that it was quiet, right? It got so loud that it was silence. And what's ironic about that is that my son just left uh, last night to fly to North Carolina. He's spending a couple of days in Winston with my parents. And then my parents Saturday driving him up to Carolina for Carolina basketball camp. <laughs> How about that? And you used to go to that camp. Yeah. You mentioned in the book that you have a picture of you and Dean Smith. UNC was your dream school, right? Was it? Yeah, I was a diehard Carolina fan as a kid growing up. And you mentioned that eventually they did offer you a scholarship, but it took a long time. And eventually, originally they wanted you to walk on, right, to Carolina? Right. Couldn't do that. Okay, so tell me if this is right. I was at courtside that day watching that game, and I think you scored on Raymond Felton and yelled to the crowd, he can't guard me, he can't guard me. Do you remember that? Don't remember that, but I probably did. I've said that I don't know how many times in my life and in my career. So, so you're 38 years old now, still playing great basketball, but what do you want your legacy to be as your career enters these final years? Uh, I think my legacy, you know, which I don't even think about at all, Hopefully it's just that I, I played the game the right way and I was appreciative and, you know, brought more to the game than I took away, especially when it comes to off the court, as far as trying to make sure that guys are educated and understand, um, you know, that there's longevity and understanding the game, right? And knowing that there's more than just playing the game. And uh, I hope I hope my legacy would be my AU program and the kids that, continue to play in the league after I'm gone. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You know, Team CP3 and also just how deeply connected. I know you don't live in North Carolina anymore, but how deeply connected your family and yourself remain to our state. Oh, I'm <laughs> all my family still live in North Carolina except for me and my brother. My parents still in Winston or right outside in Louisville. Uh, my Aunt Rhonda lives in Charlotte. Um I mean, my AAU program is based out of North Carolina, out of Winston. I have my CP3 Basketball Academy right there in Winston-Salem. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. You know, I got a number of, I be wanting to say kids. And when I hear this, I hope they ain't mad because they like, they, they're grown, like a lot of them grown now. But I sort of look at them as that because I've known them for, for such a long time. But, uh, you know, Grant Williams, um, Reggie Bullock, um, uh, Harry Giles, um, so many, Dennis, uh, so so many, so many kids that that played in our program. You know what I mean? And I'm I'm grateful for them. Colin Sexton, I can keep going on. Josh Okoye that played plays on my team. Wendell Carter, Wendell Moore, all these guys uh, are, are in the league. And another connection you share with North Carolina is you received your college degree in December of 2022. You started your academic career at Wake Forest 
But why don't you tell us about where you graduated from and why it was important to graduate from that school? Yeah, so I graduated from Winston-Salem State University, which is one of 105 HBCUs and right there in the heart of Winston-Salem. What made that so special and and cool for me was that uh, I grew up in Winston-Salem and you had Winston-Salem State over here and Wake Forest over here. I spent a lot more time at Winston-Salem State as a kid than at Wake Forest, but uh, Wake Forest will forever hold a huge special place in my heart. I donated um, a locker room at Wake. um, And I think by me doing two years at Wake Forest and then graduating from Winston-Salem State, it just makes me that much more connected to the city where I'm from. And uh, I've tried to do a lot of different work for HBCUs and trying to make sure that their voice is heard and make sure people understand the importance of them and, you know, just always trying to help if any way I can. And you actually came to the graduation ceremony, if I remember. What was that like? Yeah, graduation was cool. I think it was on December 16th. I I have to check the date, but it was crazy because uh, 16th, 19th, something like that. I just remember I had a game in L.A. Uh, We played against the Clippers. Uh, as soon as the game was over, I had to go to the plane with my family, flew to uh, Winston, went to the graduation, got right back on the plane, flew to Phoenix because I had a game the next day in Phoenix. Wow, 6,000 miles around trip, I guess. That is impressive. And what was your degree in? My degree was in communications. Christopher E. Paul. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. You were the, and you write about this in the book, but you were the NBA Players Association president for eight or nine years. And weren't you also involved in, you know, sort of helped getting Donald Sterling out of the league, I believe, as well? What was some of the work you were most proud of doing for the Players Association? I was the president of the union for eight years, but on the executive committee as a whole for 15 years. Um Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a number of things that that <laughs> taken place over that time. You know, um, the different things with Donald Sterling, uh, setting up the bubble, making sure that that uh, was set up and ran smoothly. But I think the proudest thing I am, the, the thing I'm proudest of in my time as the president of the union is the fact that we set up uh, health insurance for retired players. Right. So we're the only professional sports league that has that set up to where retired players are now taken care of insurance-wise because those guys laid the foundation for what we're able to do now. And so that's probably the biggest achievement. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That is really cool. You have immersed yourself in so many different projects. When you do eventually retire, what do you want to do next? Oh, when I retire? That's a good question. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm still in it too deep to even think about that. <laughs> you know, I definitely work on other things, you know, and just try to, you know, make sure I'm I'm learning because uh, there's a lot of hours in a day and I commit plenty of hours to training and recovery or whatnot. But those other hours uh, are always given to my family and to just um, learning, learning because Coach Prosser used to say it. My pops used to say it when I was little, but they always said one day that ball will stop bouncing. And so then you got to figure out what's next. I thought you might say you'd be a professional bowler. Uh, I got to see what my game looking like these days. 
What do you average as a bowler? Uh, I'm going to get 200 easily. Hmm. Yeah, that would that'd probably do it. <laughs> so you're obviously switching teams next year, and how important is going to a team that has championship potential? Obviously, that's the one thing that's not on your resume. And I feel like every team I play on is going to have championship potential. <laughs> Always. But, um, you know, for me, I, I love to play. I still love to play at a high level. And so I don't care who you are and what you do. Wherever you are, you want to be appreciated, you know. And if that's not the case, then, you know, you, you figure it out. And I would say the thing that I'm, you know, happy about, it could be a lot worse. You know, there's some guys out there that's not not sure if they're going to have a have a job next year. You know, so, um, you know, whatever is meant to be will be. It's nice to be wanted at age 38. That's unusual in the NBA. <laughs> you devote a whole chapter in the book to Kobe Bryant and a partnership that would have been spectacular in the NBA, but it never was. Just speak about the idea that you almost got to play with Kobe. Yeah, um, man, me and Kobe were two people. We just, we got along like really, really well. But when we played against each other, it was always ugly. <laughs> But it was because I think we we shared sort of the same mindset. And, you know, there's so many different experiences that we had on Olympic teams together. But I always talk about the All-Star Game stuff, which was the coolest to me, is that we only knew one way to play. <laughs> right? So if in any All-Star Game, somebody was coming in all casual, like, man, what were we on tonight? Me and Kobe was trying to get to it. And I can appreciate that. Everybody ain't everybody's not wired like that. And that's okay. But I appreciated that about him that he was on the same energy that I was on. You played together on the Olympic team, if I remember, right? Twice, right? Twice. Right. We've done one of these sports legends interviews with Coach K as well. What was playing for him like? You had competed against him for many years. Yeah. Coach K was cool. You know, it was funny. I played on the USA team in 06 after my rookie year, which uh, – I think the relationship was very interesting at the time because um, we was fresh off of, you know, being sort of rivals in college. So he had to get to know me and I had to get to know him. And I think once we did that, there was an appreciation there. Right. And there was a, uh, a realization that um, we wanted the same thing, you know, and that was to, to compete, play at a high level. And so uh, I'm grateful for that relationship because uh you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the best when I was in college. Um, you again in the book, you talk so much about Winston-Salem, very, very lovingly in a lot of ways. And so that is interesting. I didn't realize that little Chris was going back to UNC's basketball camp. Is that a new thing? or? He went last year. So you had a good experience, I guess. Do you get a lot back to the Carolinas over the summer? Uh, I try to. I used to all the time. But now with kids and their lives and all that, you know, not as much as uh, as much as I used to. What sort of father would you say you are? What's your style? My style? Uh, I don't know. I'm hard. I'm very, I'm very hard. Uh, but also love on my kids more than anything. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. You know, I'm definitely the one who is not going to give them any shortcuts. You know, and that's the way, that's the way I was brought up. And for my kids, they live a very abnormal life. And so I feel like, you know, 
when they go out into the world, there's a lot of things that um, they're going to have to deal with that they had no um, no part in, right? Like they didn't get a chance to choose what house they lived in. They didn't get a chance to choose uh, what resources they had, but I just want them to be prepared for any and everything that comes comes before them because that's what my folks did for me. When you think about the way you grew up in Winston-Salem, you write about scrubbing the bathroom at Jones Chevron and other things that you had to do, the dirty work, I guess you'd say. And you've always done that on the court, too. Do you worry at all? I mean, no fault of their own, but, you know, your children have grown up in a very different environment. Um, no, I mean, at times I feel like a lot of my relationships with the people that I have have been uh, people that are parents. People that I'm always trying to learn from, take tidbits from, because um, I can't expect them to do everything that I did. Right? I, I woke up in the morning, had to cut grass on the weekends, you know, so. Uh, with times changing and the world being different, you have to find other ways to to show them that discipline or uh, make sure they know that just because that family does it that way don't mean that's how we're going to do it. Like my son is 14, my daughter is 10, they don't have social media, right? He doesn't have an Instagram, he doesn't have Snapchat and all these different things, but that's a choice that we make because, you know, you have to be prepared for all those things. That's a brave choice. And these times I think a lot of parents would like to make that choice. Probably I'm a parent of four myself, but it's tough. Yeah. yeah they, they have phones and that's enough <laughs> to tell you the truth. That's enough to have to deal with because, uh, our kids got phones early because I'm gone so often, you know, and I wanted them to be able to have uh, a direct line to me. And so, um, but that's that's a task in itself because all kids have phone now phones now and you just gotta you gotta monitor it as best you can. When you think about your career, Chris, you've played against and with pretty much every one of the best players of the past two decades. So what would be your all time top five, either of teammates or players you played with or against? Oh man, that's a tough question. I definitely put David West on that list, you know. D West uh who I played with for a while, uh, Russell Butler, rest in peace to him. I had some really good teammates, Willie Green, uh, Book, DeAndre Jordan. I could go on and on. Like these people that, some of these people I named are people that I have relationships with for the rest of my life. The team was probably the San Antonio Spurs for a while. You know, they was just, it was a well-oiled machine. You know, you try to take out Tony, Manu, get going. Then Tim Duncan, you know, they, they were really good. Um, Braun is tough to, to game plan for. Steph is tough to game plan for. All these different guys, man. Like it's, it's been cool. Like Allen Iverson, who was, who was my GOAT, you know, playing against him the first time, I'll never forget it. So um, just keep going. Wow. I had kind of forgotten that you overlapped with Iverson. What was that like? Oh man. First time I played against Allen Iverson after the game, he asked me to sign my shoes. And I was weirded out, like, what's what's going on? And I, he had said that his his son was a fan of mine. And I was tripping, like, but I'm a fan of yours. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what's been really cool is to have that relationship with, with AI. Uh, he lives in Charlotte now. And uh, uh, when I got hurt this year in the playoffs, that was the first text message I got was from him. 
was from him. So I appreciate him. This is Iverson taking on a rookie, Paul. No easy cover for a rookie or anybody for that matter. Paul only two years at Wake Forest. You mentioned former Wake Forest coach Skip Prosser a lot in the book and the impact he made on your life. So tell us about that. You know, it's funny. I only played for coach for two years. But coach played such a huge part of my life and everything that I've done now. He just always was real with me. Even when I was in high school, before I got to Wake, he would come there and just be honest with me. Like, you need to play some defense. And then when I lost him, that was tough because it was just so sudden. And um, I can just see him and hear his voice and just – it's crazy how life happens, and uh, you just never prepare for some of the things that, that will come your way. When the news of Prosser's death hit the college basketball fraternity, it hit hard. You also mentioned his saying, never delay gratitude is very important to you. Very important. He used to say, never delay gratitude. If you can't be on time, be early. All these different things, but it's real. It's real, and when you think about that, never delay gratitude. It's the when you get off the phone with your loved one, with your family member, with your mom, your dad. Be sure, just I love you, you know, because you just never know. I know so many people who've always wished that they could say this or say that to to someone again. So just make sure they they know how much you appreciate it. Your last moments with Papa Chili. You write about this in the book. What were those exactly? Um, my last words was just call me when you get home (laughs) or let me know when you get home. That's what we used to do. And that's why I was so, it's still so crazy to me that the night before he died, he, we went to the game, just me and him. Like, I still don't understand how, like we did, definitely did things just me and him. But the fact that we was going to a basketball game and like my parents didn't come. It was just me and him, and that's it's it's so wild to me that that is um, that was our last night together. What game was that? Uh, it was it was Wake Forest. Um, it was Wake Forest um, preseason game. As the teenagers convicted of your grandfather's murder tried to get a new trial, did you watch any of those court proceedings? Yeah, I watched it. Yeah. Did you think it was handled correctly? Um, I watched it probably more so because uh, I was unable to watch any of it while I was in college. You know, my parents never let me and my brother go to any of the trial stuff. So the hardest part for me through all that was my parents, uh, especially my mom and her sister having to live through it again. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Chris. Thank you for giving us this time. Thank you so much, too. Thanks so much for listening and supporting local journalism. Find more on these interviews, including special video features, at charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends. And pre-order the Sports Legends of the Carolinas book at sportslegendsbook.com. And if you like what we're doing out here, please consider a digital subscription to the Charlotte Observer. Sports Legends of the Carolinas is a product of the Charlotte Observer. It's hosted by me, Scott Fowler and produced by Lume Alisali and Jeff Siner. The executive producer of the Sports Legends franchise is Kata Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and our executive editor is Raina Cash. 
and McClatchy Audio's interns are Zoe Williams and Christina Silvestri. See you next time.